Let's, uh, let's look at Genesis 6. Um, tell you what, we'll, we'll read verses 5 through 8 in just a moment. Um, my family got to go on vacation and, uh, and spend some time with family, which is why we weren't here last week. And so again, I'm, I'm grateful to be able to be back in front of you preaching. So we'll, we'll get into the text in a second. Uh, one of my favorite all-time movies is one that came out when I was in college called The Dark Knight. Have you ever seen the, the Batman movie, The Dark Knight? You guys know, are you familiar with that? It's a really popular movie. Y'all don't know why you're looking at me like that. Um, the Dark Knight's a really popular film, and it's one of my all-time favorites. It was the second of three, and it was the best of the three, in my opinion. Um, one of my favorite movies ever. It's Batman. You know, it's a Christopher Nolan movie with the Joker in it and a lot of hype uh, surrounding it. Even when it was released, um, I went to a midnight showing for that movie when I was in college, back when I could still do that, and that's not happening anymore, right? Uh, but in that movie, it's so neat because uh, it's, it's so... I think that a good movie has to have a good antagonist. Not just a good protagonist, but a good antagonist. And the villain in The Dark Knight is awesome. It's the Joker, right? And Heath Ledger plays the Joker. And in that movie, the tension is building... And the music even helps that because the music, the score is fantastic. And the situation, again, you have to have a good antagonist to have a really great movie. And in that movie, the antagonist is powerful and strong and seemingly the situation is hopeless because tension is building. The situation seems increasingly hopeless, which makes a good superhero movie. There are politicians that are being assassinated. The Joker is terrorizing citizens. Police department is corrupted. There's widespread fear and panic. And then you got one, the Batman, who's supposed to make everything better. And it's like... Even for him this time, I think he's outgunned, right? And so that builds into a, a sort of an odds heavily against the hero of great struggle and suffering and despair, and he's losing, and the enemy is winning, and there's hopelessness. And right in the middle of that movie, there's a line by a guy who's one of the governing officials. His name's Harvey Dent, which ends up being Two-Face, and if you haven't seen the movie yet, that's the big one. Uh, but he ends up being Two-Face, but he says this line at a press conference right as the climax is sort of approaching, and he says this line that you may have heard before in a different context, and that is that the night is darkest just before the dawn. You ever heard that before? The night is darkest just before the dawn. Now, if you were to walk into that movie late, like really late, like right when he said that line, do you think that that line would hit the same if you walked into the theater just in time to hear that line of dialogue halfway through the movie? No. Why? Because there's a whole lot of buildup that leads to that moment that then builds into the climax, right? You can't it really just annoys me to tell dog get out if you walk into a movie like period because I'm like, you paid money for this. What are you doing? You're not even going to get it. Or you're like texting the whole time and being like, what did they say? Like they said, you need to leave. That's what they said. You need to get out because you're not really here for the experience. The thing is what happens before the climax matters. What happens before the climax makes the climax, right? It makes it. If it doesn't exist, the climax doesn't exist. When it comes to the story of the Bible, while the climax is undoubtedly Passion Weekend, Easter, the Easter story, that weekend, the dawn of Easter Sunday is only powerful because of the darkened and darkening night that began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the hopelessness of a broken world, an impending grave for all of humanity that frames the hope of an empty grave of Jesus. That's the climax, but to get there, we have to start at the beginning. Otherwise, the climax really isn't much of a climax. We've got to start at the beginning, which is what we're going to do in this series. 
Each week in this mini-series, Hope and Hopelessness, we will see that it is no coincidence that the times that God's hope seems or is seen most wonderfully are in the moments that the weight of hopelessness is felt so severely. And so today we're going to see a hopelessly broken creation that is destroyed in a flood of judgment. But as we look closely at the man named Noah, we also see in this passage sort of streams of mercy and the dawn of hope. So let's look at Genesis chapter 6 verses 5 through 8 this morning, all right? It'll be on the screen behind me, but if you can look in front of you. You have a Bible, that's great. If not, there's one in the chair rack in front of you. We really are, are a biblical-driven church, and certainly in the preaching ministry, and so we're going to stick to the text, okay? Genesis 6, verses 5 through 8, it says this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You may know what happens next, but I think the tendency when approaching the flood narrative is to focus on an angry and fed up God. God's angry, and he's fed up in some ways, and that's where his wrath comes into play. But I want to observe instead the thread of God's love and care for his creation that can be followed all the way from not only the flood narrative, but all the way to the cross and empty tomb. In other words, the Genesis story, which Genesis just means beginning, so if you haven't found Genesis in your Bible, there's, that's where it is. It's at the beginning, and you're also late, but that's okay. Uh, it's there. And so when you look at the beginning of the story, the Genesis narrative, the story begins with God's love for people, his love for his creation. That's where the story begins, not with a God of judgment, but with a God who loves his people, he created them in his own image. But the flood narrative begins with a God who is grieved because what he created to love and be loved by had rejected him and corrupted themselves. I don't want to assume any information, but we also don't have time to read three lengthy chapters of Genesis. One of my pet peeves is assuming that you know the Bible, because I didn't when I was any of your age, just about, if you're younger than me. I haven't known how to read the Bible since I was in seminary about. So I don't want to assume any information. And so I want to read the entire flood narrative, but I think that you probably have lunch plans. So we're not going to do that, okay? So while I want to really dive in here and look at a lot of things, we don't have time to do that. But instead, I wanted to look at the, at the story of Noah's Ark, this great flood of judgment in the beginning and in the ending. So instead of reading all three of these chapters, I, I instead decided to ask something you may have heard of, you may not have. Has anyone heard of ChatGPT? Raise your hand if you've heard of ChatGPT. Oh, good. It's making its rounds. You'll know about it probably soon enough. In fact, you're going to know about it right now. ChatGPT is an artificial intelligence chatbot that is constantly scouring and learning the web, the internet. And so what I did is I went to ChatGPT. Again, it's artificial intelligence. It's not a real person, but it's really, really a lot smarter than you and me. And so I typed in and said, tell me the story of Noah's Ark. Or I said, summarize the story of Noah's Ark. And it summarized it, and I was like, that's not fun enough. I said, tell me the story of Noah's Ark, or summarize the story of Noah's Ark like a Gen Z person. And that was a little bit better. But then I said, use more slang. And so it told it again with more slang. And I said, more slang. And so it told it again. So I'm going to summarize Noah's Ark. Chat GPT. This is copied and pasted, I promise. Yo. 
That's really how it begins. God was fed up with all the wickedness on earth. So he hit up Noah and was like, yo, dude, you're the only one who's legit righteous around here and not a total clown. You got to help me out. And Noah was like, bet, what's up? You're responding to this favorably, and I appreciate it. God was like, build a ginormous boat, man, and bring your squad and two of every animal on board. I'm about to flood the earth and start over. And Noah was like, whoa, that's crazy, man. But I'm down. Let's do this. So Noah built the ark and gathered all the animals. Then the rain came down like crazy for 40 days and 40 nights. And everything was straight up underwater. But Noah and his homies and all the animals were chilling on the, on the, on the ark, all good. Finally, the rain stopped, and the ark landed on a mountain. Noah and his squad and all the animals bounced and started populating the earth again. And that's how it all went down, fam. It is. We need a chat GPT. Translate the Bible like that. I loved doing that, and I'm glad you loved it too. You see, that really is an okay summary, to be honest with you. It starts with the wickedness of, of people. Noah finding favor in the eyes of God. And you know a lot of the rest. That God did flood the earth. And it was horrible judgment on the earth. Forty days and forty nights. But God had found favor with him, Noah. You know, the flood is a three-chapter puzzle piece of an entire wide or Bible-wide puzzle. And I think one of the best places that we can start the gospel story is by comparing God's original sinless creation with the clear statement in Noah's day that every intention, you see that right in verse 5, that every intention of the human heart was evil continually. I mean, in creation, we could talk about John three sixteen, the first part, for God so loved, for God so loved the world that he created it, right? That's how much God loved you, that he created humanity. God loved humanity. And even in the fall, we saw that God so loved humanity that he promised that he would even fix the brokenness of humanity. You can see John three sixteen in Genesis. God so loved the world that he created. God so loved the world that he didn't end it all right there in Genesis chapter 3. He loved the world. He loves us. He loved people. Corruption and sin and evil then increased, and we get to Genesis chapter 6. This crescendoing chord of the Old Testament is a God whose love for his creation motivates his mercy towards sinners. You see that, right? It's his love that motivates all of these events that we see, and the flood is no exception to that. So I want to leave you with two things if you're taking notes this morning. And we talk about streams of mercy, and we do want to focus on God's mercy towards sinners. But to, do, to talk about mercy, mercy just means not getting what you deserve. Okay, not getting what you do deserve. That's mercy, being withheld something that you deserve to be thrown down on you. And when we talk about mercy, we first have to talk about sin. So number one is that sin is not mere rule transgression, but is rather relational transgression. Sin is not mere rule transgression, but is a relationship transgression. You see how those two, two things are different, right? One is against a law, arbitrary. One is against a God who loves us. It's a relational transgression, not simply a rule of violation. At the core of the gospel exists a damaged and severed relationship. The humans were created, designed to love God, but chose sin. Obedience towards God is rooted in love. When Adam and Eve chose to sin, they chose to not love God, but instead to love themselves. They desired to be like God. And the same is true for us. God created you to love him and to obey him. To disobey God is not just to fail a command. To disobey God is for you to refuse to love God. That's why it says in, in God's Word that the law can be summarized in this way. Love the Lord your God. How do you summarize the law? How do you summarize all these rules? Love God. Love God. Love Him with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. 
Now, you may not think twice about transgressing a speed limit. You can't hurt a speed limit. You can't offend a speed limit. You can't harm or break the heart of a speed limit. But there should be an amount of empathetic, loving caution about transgressing someone like your spouse or your parents or your friend or your coworker or your teacher or your waiter or anybody created in the image of God, which is anybody. You know why? Because transgressing something that's arbitrary, a rule, is a lot different than transgressing a human being or an entity that is personable, right? It's a relationship that is there. And transgressing people is different. And that's what sin is. It's absolutely foundational. To disobey God is not just to fail a command. To disobey God is for you to refuse to love him. You see that, right? To disobey God is not just to fail a command, it's to refuse to love the Lord your God. He is not just a name on a page. He is not just a sky genie. He is not a statue. He is your Father who loves you. A horribly fractured relationship, meant to be precious, was damaged. And that's what makes verse 5 so gut-wrenching. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Just think about that. That what God created to be his own possession, his prize, his treasure, turned on him. Was violently opposed to him. Transgressed him. While God was and is holy, entirely holy, as we sang about just a moment ago, and sinless, man was entirely and completely evil. Psalm 14.3 says, They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is none who does does good, not even one. Jesus quoted the same thing later in his life and ministry. Though humans do sin against one another every day, all sin is primarily vertical. At first, first and foremost, it is a rejection of God and his design. That's why David said in Psalm 51, after he had sinned greatly against man and woman, by the way, he said in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. It's against you first, God. Even if it's against others, it's primarily against God. Sin eternally fractures the vertical relationship as it did in Genesis chapter 6. Look at verse 6. And the Lord, notice the fracture here. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. Quick word here on this word, regret. You may read that and say, what? God, did God make a mistake? Your translation may even say that he repented. It's like, God's sin, well, later on in verse 7, it's going to say that he was sorry that he exists, for I am sorry that I have made them. Now, what does that really mean? Just real quickly, that's not really the point that we want to hunker down on here, but I'll explain real quick. It does not mean that God made a mistake or even that he, according to our definition, repented, because he doesn't do that. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man, meaning a person, that he should repent. God's character, in other words, is capable of complex forms of emotion. Put it this way, simply, he can lament a decision and affirm a decision as best simultaneously. In fact, it's not that complex. You do the same thing. If you are a parent or have been a parent, you have done the same thing. You may have had to discipline a child who hits their sibling. You can feel remorse for whatever that form of discipline is. Say it's a spanking. You can feel remorse and sorry that this spanking had to occur. And it's not in a sense of disapproving of your own actions, but sorry that it was necessary, that it was the necessary decisive action. The parent, in other words, would still discipline the child if doing it over again because it was the right thing to do. And yet you can say, I'm sorry this has to happen. You see what I'm saying? 
It's a complex form of emotion, and we can acknowledge that. So God was both sorry and not regretting at the same time. Does that make sense? I think that's important. You can approve and yet be remorseful towards something at the same time. And similar to the parent-child relationship, God is intimately involved with his transgressors, just like maybe you and your kids. God is not some divine, eternal spectator who spun the globe of the earth and now watches it spin. He is emotionally and relationally involved in the created order. In the same way that a good father is not merely a spectator in a child's life, God is angered and grieved by the sin of his creation. He cares. He's involved in that. Going back to God's original design, creation, the same creation that he finished and called good and placed it at the highest order of his creation is that which grieved him the most. Please hear this. Your sin grieves God. It's relational. Your sin is not just against the rule book where you say, shoot, I failed again. I messed up again. No, no. You hurt God again. It's relational at the end of the day. Your sin grieves God, and your sin, our sin, my sin, damages your relationship with God. Eternally, absolutely, but also day to day, it harms that fellowship. But understanding this serves to strengthen your relationship with him. In other words, knowing what threatens a relationship serves to safeguard and strengthen that relationship. You may know your children's weaknesses and what threatens their minds and their hearts, and so you would then proactively seek to safeguard those relationships. Or maybe a spousal example would be better, that you know what threatens your marriage and so threatens the heart of your spouse and say, it would be wise for me to seek what safeguards, what is vital to the vibrancy and intimacy of this relationship. You know what threatens it, and therefore you know what safeguards you can take to protect it. Does that make sense? The same is true of your relationship with God. If you care about that relationship, you need to know what threatens it and say, I'm going to take safeguards to preserve it. And we should certainly know what threatens that most important relationship. And the thing that threatens most, our relationship with God, is not Satan. It's sin. Satan doesn't have jurisdiction to threaten your relationship with God. God said you're his. If you're in Christ, you're his. He can't threaten that. He can't snatch you from his hand, from John 10. He can't. The only damage that you can do to that relationship is the damage that you can do to that relationship. And it is sin. So what do we do about that? I think one thing that we can do is that we can align our values with God's values. Align your values with God's values. To know what hurts God's heart, you must know God's heart. Just like your children or your, your spouse. To know what hurts them, you must know them. Be intimately connected with them. And certainly we can see that that's the case. It means that we need to change our thinking. But also that we need to, secondly, not just align our values with God's values, but also not to be, don't be reactive, but be proactive. We just got back from the beach, and there was a couple of moments where we could look and watch our kids play in the ocean. I don't really do the ocean, and I was affirmed by that because they found a great white shark in Orange Beach last week. I don't know if you heard about that. And I was like, I'm right again, but you know, whatever. I'm not going to—I'm just kidding. I don't go in the ocean because it's just a gigantic interspecies toilet. I've told you this already. Anyway, the salt does so much. But anyway, so but I was watching, and, and people playing in, in the ocean, and my kids playing in the ocean, and they're like little bitty, you know, and I'm like— those waves are gigantic to them. And with waves in the sea, I mean, you know what waves are when they come. And they're, they're powerful, right? If they're big waves, they can be really powerful. And so even before you put your first toe in the water, you know what to expect. You're proactive, in other words. You're not reactive. If you go into the ocean reactively, you're going to find yourself reactively on your behind, right? 
because you know what waves do. And so you lean into the momentum of a wave or you may jump off the ocean floor in order to get your head above the water. If you're reactive in the ocean, you're going to suffer. You may even drown, right? That's what reactiveness looks like. No, when we go into the ocean, we go proactively, looking for ways we can say, I'm going to lean into this problem, lean into this resistance, and find ways to overcome it. It's no surprise when you step into the ocean that waves are coming. You expect it. It comes with the territory, literally. In fact, you'd be a fool to be reactive in that situation. And I say that simply to say, it is no surprise when you step into the world that waves are coming. You shouldn't be surprised by that. When you step into the world, waves are coming. You expect it. It comes with the territory, and you would be a fool to be reactive instead of proactive. Waves are coming. Why would you expect any less? Another thing, we talk about aligning our values with God's values, being proactive instead of reactive. But another way that we can be intentional about this and seeing what threatens our relationship with God, sin, is to ask God for a changed and changing heart. The word for this is repentance. The word for this is repentance. That's a simple word that simply means asking God for a changed and a changing heart. Repentance is not simply remorse, you know. They're different. You can be remorseful without being repentant. Repentance, in other words, means that you're going in one direction. Repentance is a 180-degree turn in the opposite direction. I once heard a preacher say that it's a 360-degree turn. It's like, brother, no, it's not. That would simply mean that you just spun back around. But so often... We treat repentance like it's a 360-degree turn. And we say, oh, I shouldn't have done that. You see what I'm saying? There's a difference between remorse and repentance. Repentance isn't what occurs on your knees, but it's the action that begins when you get up. It's not simply the remorse. It's the action that takes place once you get off the ground and say, God, I am remorseful. Now change and be changing my heart. It's a bad sign that you can lie restless at night because of a burdened schedule or a stressful to-do list or a work conflict or a hard conversation the next day. But when was the last time that you lay restless because of the God-given burden of sin that you must confess in order to restore a sense of intimacy with God? Are you broken over sin the way that you are fretted out over the difficulties of this world? I'd say that's a good place to start with actual repentance. One way that we can do this is simply to ask God, God, show me my blind spots. Show me where I'm missing it. Show me where I'm not seeing the sin in my life. And then finally, to seek guidance. You're not in it alone. God's given you a church family. If this is your church family, then this is, this is, we're here for you. We're here to guide you and shepherd you and minister to you. And if this isn't your church family, it can be. Don't do this alone. God did not call one Christian to do so on an island. He called us to be a community of believers that are doing this together. None of us have reached this destination. We are all on a journey and as he exposes much of our failures, we need to be reminded that while our sins are many, his mercy is more, as we sing about. In other words, there's not one sin that you've committed that was exempt to his forgiveness. Can we just thank God for that? There's not one sin that you, for, that you have committed that is above and beyond his forgiveness. Thank the Lord. There's good news to be found. And that's the mercy that I want to focus on. We focus on the sin. We focus on the darkness and the dawn that is to come. The second thing that I want you guys to see, the dawn of hope is cherished most in the darkness of hopelessness. The dawn of hope is cherished the most in the darkness of hopelessness. Or as Harvey Dent put it, the night is darkest just before the dawn, right? By the way, while you're writing, you ever notice that the dark night is a double entendre? The night is darkest. Anyway, another time. Grace is a gift. 
Amen? Grace is a gift of God's favor. We see a glimmer of this in just a moment in verse 8. Before we do, we're going to look at verse 7. It's not based on the goodness of the recipient, but the goodness of the giver. That's what grace is, right? Look at verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Pause there for just a moment. This paragraph, just verses 5 through 8, is an introduction. Again, next you see Noah and the flood, and it goes through all of the details that ChatGPT already covered for us. Like, be thankful for ChatGPT and its eloquence in telling us what happens next. What the divine initiator once judged as beautiful and good, he later judged as despicable and wicked. You see how quickly it shifts, right? This is good. This is terrible. What a shift we see. He flooded the earth, exhaustive destruction. No one outside of that ark survived. No creation except the fish that could live in the water. They were destroyed. And this wasn't God throwing a fit. No one got thrown a hissy fit and saying, they just, mm -mm." that's not what God's doing, right? God is a God of justice. He's a holy God. And when God looks at his justice and sees, sees what should be condemnable, he then sees punishment and wrath and justice. We talk about holy, holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. And that creation had been sin, sin, sin. That's our problem, church. And what we see here, going into this narrative, if you stop at verse 7, look, look at it again. The Lord said, I'll blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. This is the, this is the quick ending to a quick story, right? Man, animals, creeping things, birds of the heavens, I'm sorry that I have made them. What a, what a quick ending. I mean, if that's it, that's it. What a short story for humanity, is it not? But thank God that it doesn't stop there. It sounds like the horrible, hopeless, and tragic ending to a movie that ends in disaster. But to cap this introduction paragraph, there's a glimmer of hope for humanity, and that's verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor may be translated grace in your translation. It simply means an act of kindness beyond what is due. You better believe it. An act of kindness beyond what is due. Noah was a faithful man. He was a God-fearer, but he was a sinful man, which we're going to see, just like anyone else. This is so important. If God had exterminated all of humanity, then he would have ceased to be faithful. Because in Genesis chapter 3, he promises that he will end sin by way of the promise of a Savior who will deal with Satan and sin that will be the son of man. God could not destroy all of humanity and still be a faithful God. You hear me? That's the juxtaposition. That's the conflict. God could not remain faithful and good to his promises and also wipe out humanity entirely. That's a collision course. He could not make this promise, then end mankind and still be faithful to his promises. And so he pours out not only a flood of judgment, but also a tiny stream of consistent and ongoing mercy. Noah's faith met with God's grace And it meant salvation from annihilation, not only for Noah's family, but also for all who would come after him. And that's us included. I want you to see that Noah was faithful, and God used him to bring salvation, but Noah was not good enough to be the Savior. He was faithful, but he was a sinner just like you and me. He was faithful, but he was not good enough to be the Savior. And guys, our biggest problem, man's biggest problem, whether man starts as an infant or 
is near the grave. Man's biggest problem isn't floodwaters. It's that apart from a rescuer, we are drowning in a flood of sin destined for a real place called hell that represents eternity apart from a holy God. That's our problem. And Noah, though faithful, wasn't good enough to be our rescuer. This, this is a verse that you may have not seen. Maybe you've seen it and brushed over it, but haven't really paid attention to it. Chapter 5. Look back just real quick. Chapter 5, verses 28 and 29. Just be mindful here. He was good, but he wasn't good enough. He wasn't the rescuer, right? God used him in a mighty way, but he wasn't the rescuer. Look at verses 28 and 29 of chapter 5. It says, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. You see that, right? He called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground... That the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. When it says, call his name Noah, saying out of the ground, what he's saying is the reason I'm going to call him Noah is because out of the ground the Lord has cursed, this one will bring us relief. Your translation may say rest. You know why? Because he's saying I'm going to name him Noah because it means rest. I'm going to give him the name that means rest, hoping that he will be the one to reverse the curse that God gave us in Genesis chapter 3. Noah, he's going to be born, and I believe that he's going to be the one, the faithful one, that comes and brings rest. He was meant to bring rest from the curse, to have dominion over the creation. Where Adam was dominated by creation and sinned, Noah's father predicted that he would reverse the curse and not be dominated by creation. But Noah was himself dominated by creation. The very next thing that happens after the boat is that Noah gets off and he sins. He sins. He sinned by fruit, in fact, just like the first Adam did. He gets off the boat and God says, go and plant a vineyard. Go and be fruitful and multiply. Plant a vineyard and be master, exercise dominion over the creation. And you know what he does as master over the creation? He's supposed to use this crop to do great good. He gets wasted on it. He gets drunk. And once again, we see that man was mastered by the creation. He didn't exercise dominion. He himself was dominated. You see, God had saved Noah, a new genesis, right? A beginning, a new beginning. In fact, we see this as a new creation. That's why he tells Noah and his family, be fruitful and multiply. You know who else he told that? Adam and Eve in creation. He says, go and be fruitful and multiply. He did the same thing to Noah because it's a recreation, judgment, fruitful, multiply. Go and tend the garden even. Plant a garden. Go and tend the garden. What does that sound like? It sounds like Adam. And we see right after that, not just a recreation, but a refall. He falls again, just like the first Adam. Look at chapter 9, 20 and 21. Flip forward just a little bit. Chapter 9, 20 and 21. Noah, here's this command. Go and be a man of the soil. So it says, verse 20, chapter 9, verse 20. Noah began to be a man of the soil. Remember what his, uh, his dad said, by the way? He's going to come from the soil, and he's going to overcome the curse of the soil. So he goes, and he's a man of the soil, it says. He began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard, a garden. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And as much as I want to keep going with that passage, because there's so many fascinating things to see, I simply want you to see one main thing, and that is that the new gardener still sinned. The new gardener, the faithful guy, the one that found favor in the eyes of the Lord, he was broken. He sinned just like you and I do. A renewal of creation is quickly followed by a renewal of the fall. Noah sinned against God and his son sinned against him, which happens next. Nothing really changed. It means that God was still being sinned against by people and people were still sinning against one another, just like Cain and Abel did. You see, there's this hopeful restart button 
And then at the end of the day, it proves hopeless. You see that, right? God says, I'm going to start over. I have a faithful man that I'm going to start with. Noah, he's faithful. I'm going to press the reset button and start over again. And the first thing that happens is that they take of the fruit and they consume in a way that dishonors God. And we're in the same circumstances. And you know what those circumstances are? They're hopeless. And God could have pressed the reset button a million times. And every single time, that recreation would result in a refall. But God made a promise. In Genesis chapter 3, he made a promise that there would be one to come that would change the game. The gospel of Christ Jesus marks the entry of hope into a world without any. The gospel of Jesus marks the entry of hope into a world without any. Jesus found favor in the eyes of God, the Father, not by mercy and grace like Noah, but through his perfect life. And and yet this Jesus died a sinner's death, satisfying the wrath of the Father. And you can find favor in the eyes of the Father. You and I can find favor in the eyes of the Father, not through a perfect life. Noah couldn't find it in a perfect life. We can't find it in a perfect life, but through a perfect Savior who died a sinner's death. This Jesus rose again, defeating the grave so that you may not perish, but what? Have eternal life. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why the resurrection matters. A perfect Lord with perfect authority over death to give life to any who may come to him in faith. Listen, man. But before we can do that, you and I have to take ownership of the fact that sin is not just something that everybody deals with. Sin is not something that has just engulfed everybody. Sin is something that you deal with. Sin is not just something on everybody's heads. Sin is something on your head. And your biggest problem is not that you aren't a good person. Your biggest problem is that you are deprived of holiness, depraved of holiness, and desperately in need of God's saving and rescuing grace. Before you can come to faith in Jesus, you must f- first come to ownership that you got a problem. It's your problem. The other day I was in one of our kids' bedrooms, and I could see across the hallway into another bedroom. And I saw our two middle children, Zion and Eden. They're four and two, and they always get along great. Not really. Um, and they were playing with something in a way that shouldn't have been played with in the way that it was being played with. You ever heard of that? It's like a truck that they were like tossing to one another. That needs to be like this, not like this, you know. And they're tossing it, and I'm just thinking, oh, my goodness, that's going to happen. I'm going to have to be the referee again, right? I know this is going to go awry. And I told them, I was like, hey, guys, you know, play the right way. That really worked wonders. Um, about uh, 10 seconds later, um, I'm looking across the hallway, and I catch it just in time to see the truck falling to the ground, to the floor, and Eden starts crying. I mean, just in time to see it almost hit the floor, and Eden starts wailing, crying. She's two. And Zion looks at me like this. And I'll go over there. I'm like, okay, here we go. I saw this one coming. So I go in there, and I say, what happened? And Zion goes, Eden's lip got hit. <laughs> I said, okay, how did Eden's lip get hit? He goes, the truck hit it. Like, okay, how did the truck hit it? It hit her face. How did it hit her face? And this whole ring around the rosy, I said, 
did you throw it? Yes, sir. You see, we are so hesitant by nature to take ownership. Before you can realize that you have a savior, you first have to come to the honest realization that you have a problem. And it's not your parents' problem, it's not everybody else's problem, it is your problem. And no one in this room will ever come to saving faith in Jesus without first realizing that you are condemned before a holy God. It's your problem. It's all of us, but it's yours. And you have to take ownership. Before you can take ownership of the beautiful, blessed cross and empty grave, you must first take ownership of the fact that you are desperately in need of it. you got a sin problem. Your sin is great. But simply put, Christ's saving work is so much greater. You are a great sinner, but Jesus is a greater Savior. You know, this place is full of people. Praise God for that. And some of you are here today presently feeling the weight of hopelessness. And you're able to mask it and pretend. Some of you are wrestling with the depths of depression. Some of you have been wrestling with religion and getting back in church. I know I'm supposed to be in that chair when that guy's talking and they're singing. This is where I'm supposed to be. But you leave here feeling empty and it's because truly your cup has never been filled. And you're right to feel hopeless. Because you've never come to a point in your life where you've asked God to save you from your sin. You may have never come to a point in your life where you've taken ownership of that sin and said, I have a problem that I cannot solve. God save me. And some of you are here today and are wrestling with that reality. Because you know that it takes a great amount of humility to lay down your pride and say, God save me. I've got no hope. And you look around at the people and say, but what are they going to think? And you look at your family and say, but what are they going to think? I've been doing this my whole life. What are they going to think? Can I just tell you to get over yourself? It doesn't matter what they think. It matters what he thinks. And he is imploring you and seeking you and knocking on you and saying, give it up. Own your problem so that you can own your solution. And his name is Jesus. He's calling you today, man. Give it up. But others of you are here today, and, and that's not your problem. No, you're in Christ, and you're a new creation. Praise God for that. But yet still, you come into this place, and you too feel hopeless at times. You feel like you're coming apart at the seams. And maybe it means that you're wrestling with a pattern of sin, and you're just like, I feel like I'm a slave to it. I don't know what I'm going to do. I feel hopeless, I make no gains against it, and I feel like I'm coming apart. Or it may just be that you're in a world that is so stressful and you have a hard time stopping or praying or reading your Bible and say, I haven't done those things in weeks, months, years, ever. No growth, no fruit. I feel like I'm coming apart at the seams. Can I just tell you today that while you may feel like you're losing your grip on your faith or your belief or your stability, that that feeling of brokenness, of hopelessness, is the darkest night just before the greatest of dawn. And today, the sun's coming up. You don't have to leave here in despair. You can leave with such a light in your soul, not because you've lit it up, but because you've surrendered to the only one that can. You don't have to be in despair. Because your standing before a holy God isn't based on your behavior before a holy God. 
It's based on the amazing life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus who died in your place that you could live with him in his. That's the gospel. And you, you may be here and feeling hopeless, like you're coming apart at the seams and utter despair. But you're turning to all the wrong solutions. And you think, if I could just think the right way or busy myself in the right or work harder or pray harder or read more, that you'll dig yourself out of this crater. And I'm just here to tell you, it ain't going to happen. There is one who can lift a burden. And you must surrender all today. When we sing the words, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Do you believe that? Do you live that? I don't know about you, but man, I have to. I have to. Because I feel like I'm coming apart at the seams. I'll just be honest with you. This week, I, was, I didn't plan to say this, but I was just struck with a feeling today of just how much, not today, this week and for weeks, of just how much better of a pastor you deserve. I know that your natural reaction to that because you love me is to say, no, no, no. But there's nothing that you can say to fix that. Only he can. There's no words of encouragement that you could say to take that pain away. But God can. And so today I'm coming to you as someone who's bought the product and saying, my hope is built on nothing less. Not your affection, not your approval, and I want it. But I know that it's vain at the end of the day if I don't have the welcoming embrace of a God who loves me in spite of me. And you can have that too. No matter what, you can have that too. Noah was in despair and floodwaters raining down from the sky like geysers shooting up from the ground and he was given the hope of recreation in the darkest of times. God did not find favor with Noah because Noah was perfect. God found favor with Noah because God is merciful. And you cannot be encouraged today because you are good. You can be encouraged today because God is good and he is a merciful God and he loves you. Today, will you just join me in proclaiming that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Can we? Amen.